My name's Amy, and I'm going to be reading the Bible for us tonight. So come with me to Exodus chapter 16, verses 14 to 20. Exodus 16, verses 14 to 20. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. And now we're going to come to 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 to 15. Two Corinthians 8, 1 to 15. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, and then by the will of God, also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first, not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you're hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written... The one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Well, uh, good to see you all. A uh, couple of quick things before we start. First one, um, yeah, look, thank you for those of you who have kind of uh, sent text or note. 
uh, in our last little while. It's, it's, been, it's not been an easy time, but thank you for your support. Um, and just to encourage you, if you do have friends or family, people you know who lose someone in their family, have some death, really is just very helpful just to shoot off a quick text thinking and praying for you. It doesn't need to be much more than that, and it really is a great encouragement. So, so thank you for that, and uh, look for ways you can do that with others as well. Second thing is, um, uh, next, in a week's time, so sort of tomorrow week, in a week's time, we have our annual Reach Australia conference. We've been running the Reach Australia conference, well, the conference that, from which it's emerged anyway for I don't know, a bunch of years, seven, eight years or something like this. Uh, this coming week, uh, this conference coming, there's 1,100 pastors coming to it. Uh, so this building will be every seat full. Uh, it sold out two or three weeks ago. We haven't been able to sell more tickets. People have been wanting them and so on, so there's a big waiting list now too. So that is hugely encouraging, and it's encouraging because one of the things we're wanting to do uh, is encourage uh, churches around the country, and there are people coming from overseas as well, uh, to seek to grow our ministries to reach the communities around us with the gospel of Christ. We want to see Australia reached. And there really does seem to be a God-given momentum that's happening. People are uh, engaged, enthused and excited about this. And so we want your prayers. If we're going to um, continue this and see it happen, uh, then unless the Lord builds the house, the labourers labour in vain. And so we do need uh, the Lord at work. And the way uh, he, he promises to respond is by our prayers. So can I urge you to be praying this week? for the conference coming up, uh, that it might actually be fruitful and cause uh, much growth and change in our churches across the country. Wouldn't it be wonderful to see a great new revival across the whole country? Uh, pray that's it. And also, next Sunday night, you may see um, some new people around the place. There may well be pastors who have kind of come in early and are just sitting in church waiting for the conference to start the next day. Be nice to them. <laughs> pretend, pretend that this is a great place to be, right? that you really like being here and uh, offer them some encouragement and so on. So, um, uh, no, they'd love to, love to be encouraged. Uh, it's a great thing to come and sit in with us. So, uh, next, in a week's time, be praying for that. Let me pray now. Heavenly Father, we, uh, well, we do, we do recognise your hand at work in so many ways, in us, through us, among us, and, uh, and we see something of your hand at work across the country and pray, please, for much more. We do... Uh, plead with you that you might cause there to be a great revival of turning to you, that we might live to see uh, a transformation of our country with hundreds, thousands, millions even of people turning to Christ and filling churches across the land. And I uh, pray you'd use that to, us to that end. And pray please that this time tonight uh, would serve your great purposes as well, that you would work in us through your word by your spirit we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for the next two weeks, we're going to be talking about money. Uh, now, actually, not money directly, but giving, the giving of money. And that distinction might seem trivial, but it's actually an important one to make. We're going to be talking about money. Um, now, I say this up front because I know for many people, as they hear the thought the church might talk about money over the next two weeks, it kind of triggers reactions. And I'm interested to do a quick bit of research. Uh, I know amongst... Um, uh, older people, there is this kind of deal about money in churches, but I'm interested to know how much you feel it. Um, but hands up if you have friends, or you yourself, so this is not you admitting you, but it might be you have friends, have friends who you would be, be aware, thought it was problematic the way churches talked about money and wanted money. Have you got friends who are like that? Okay, hands up if you haven't got friends. 
who, who are like that, just to, just to clarify. Um, yeah, interesting, so it's still quite significant amongst us. Um, when we do this, uh, there'll be con- different kinds of reactions. Some of you will just shrug and say, whatever, do you know, uh, great, it's the Bible, keen to think into the issue. But there will be others amongst us, perhaps, or certainly concerned about your friends who might come, who have a little bit of terror, <laughs> have this kind of uh, fear that, are, that kind of rises. Um, and it might be you have a terror because you're new to church. You might be here tonight and you've kind of not been along to church often. But you've always had this sense that there's a big problem with churches because they're always talking about money. And so you lob in here and here we are going to be talking about money for the next two weeks and you're kind of going, oh everything I was afraid of it's going to happen so you might have a sense of reaction and terror and um, others though might be you might have come from another church you might have moved into the area or you've come from another church around us and you've come to us in part because you're you're hurting over the way your church talked about money all the time and abused the use of money you may have heard some of that that's uh, been in the news lately about um, Australia's largest church and its abuse of money. And, um, and you might be here as a bit of a refugee from that hurting and bruised and, and worried, oh no, is this going to be the church that does the same thing? Will this church talk about money and manipulate us and bash us? And, um, now whatever, it might be very tempting for some to say, look, I, I, I'm going to flex the new t- next two weeks. Actually, I'm going to I'm going to walk out now and not come back next week. So just we'll keep an eye on those of you who get up and go to the toilet because we'll, I'm going to name you as you go out tonight, all right? So I, I know you're actually really going because you don't want to hear it. No, no, no. If you need to go to the toilet, totally understand. <laughs> I don't know why you need to, right? It's only 40 minutes. But anyway, there you are. So, uh, but if you need to, that's okay. Uh, something might happen, I understand. Um, but... Um, I just want to say, it, is, it might be tempting for some people, I know this has happened over the years, they've heard that we're going to and they go, oh, I'm not going to come to church that week. And it's because there's this thing that happens as they hear the topic of money and uh, they don't want to be part of it, it's very painful. Can I, can I encourage you not to think like that? Uh, there is so much in these uh, chapters of the Bible that we're looking at because we're going to be tackling 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9 over the next two weeks, which deal with the topic of money. And there's so much in these chapters that is hugely surprising, refreshing, challenging, yes, but refreshing, liberating. It'll be good for our souls to tackle this thing because money is a thing in our lives. Now, if I can remember my journey as a human, (laughs) I do remember early on in my life not thinking money was a big deal at all because I had none. You know, I used to work a paper run and then a milk run and I, you know, I only got a couple of bucks a night running around the streets and so on and, and for me money wasn't a big deal, throw it all around, it was easy, I didn't have much of it um, and I remember being told back then by a really old person, I think they were in their 40s, I remember being told by a person, once you get older it will become a problem for you and I thought, ah, that won't be me but it was, it is and so I, I want you to be alert to this, that money has this power over us or our heart has this thing when it is grabbed by money we do something to it and it's like a you know aliens I always think of money like this you know aliens that bug that lived inside a person and kind of burst out money's like that it's like this alien that gets inside you puts its claws around your heart and just and feeds off you and you feed it and you get this relationship with this thing called money and the love of money Um, that means it becomes part of you and anyone who puts their finger on it and suggests you know what you've got a problem you get really defensive and antsy. No, no, I've got to protect this addiction that I have, this drug that I'm using. 
And so you get very sensitive about the topic and um, you become protective and fearful that someone might take this, this love of money away from me and, and it'll rip my flesh out when it comes and I'm going to fight to keep it. Real, money really has this power, our heart that's captivated by money. Um, now, it happens with churches and church leaders as well, as we've seen in the news, if you've been following. Um, so church leaders have the same heart. And we can be captivated by money and wanting more money and wanting churches to give money and so on, so that we get and so that we can get our, you know, our helicopter and our, um, our the number pastor one number plate and the spot that's our special. And you know, church leaders get all of that as well. So this is a message to us. It's the problem for all of us humans. You sitting there may not yet have the issue, but you will. Some of you already do. Now, we're doing all of this because, as I say, we're back into 2 Corinthians, and these two chapters of the Bible tackle the topic of money. Or giving. Now, it's not all that's said in these books. So, 2 Corinthians is a letter that's written by the Apostle Paul to an ancient church in Corinth. It's one of four letters that he wrote. Uh, We only have two of them, but this is one of four letters. And he dealt with all kinds of topics as he engaged with the Corinthians. Um, And only part of it was tackling the topic of giving and money. Now, we try and reflect the same thing. That is, our desire as a church is to go chapter by chapter through the Bible... And where a chapter talks about money, we'll talk about it. Where it doesn't, we won't. That's our plan and purpose. Um, And we just happen now to be in a book that's doing exactly this thing. And so we're wanting to be faithful to what the Bible teaches. But in knowing all of that, I just want to urge you and get you to appreciate this. It really will do something good for us. It'll refresh and liberate and bring newness of life. It'll heal a problem that will emerge. So talking about this is deeply important. Now, with all of that in mind, let's start by noting a couple of, thing about, a couple of things about these two chapters. Um, they are firstly part of a, this larger letter. Um, and these two chapters are particularly focused on a specific thing, a very specific act of giving. And it's critical that we appreciate this so that we can apply it properly to ourselves. Now, if you've got the NIV Bible, which happens to be the translation we read from, um, and, you've got a, and you've got a book Bible, if you, you, it, and you haven't got a phone, right, but you've got a real Bible, one that's actually the Word of God, um, <laughs> then you'll see at the top of chapter 8, there's in bold, the collection for the Lord's people. Now, that's not written by the Apostle Paul. It wasn't in the ancient manuscripts, but it's our... Editors have just put that in there to help us as we read through it all. And the question to ask is, who are these people, the Lord's people? Because understanding that will help you see this very specific thing that's going on here. Now, when you hear that phrase, which is used actually in the text, verse 4, the bottom part of verse 4, in this service to the Lord's people, and it's mentioned again in chapter 9, verse 12, where he sort of wraps up this whole topic the needs of the Lord's people. Now, you hear the language of Lord's people and I think what we imagine he's talking about is Christians, the Lord's people, Christians. But not quite. And uh, I'm sorry to do this to you, but in the original language, uh, it's, there's not two Greek words, Lord's people, there's the word saints, for the saints. And... Um, and that's quite a critical word. Now, when Paul uses the word saints, he doesn't just mean all Christians. 
Now, he's not doing it in the same way that the Roman Catholic Church has done it down through the centuries where they've said that some Christians are saints in that they're higher Christians, they're closer to God Christians. No, 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 no. The Bible never talks like that about saints. All Christians are saints and there are some Christians that Paul, particularly in some contexts, references as saints. You need to understand the context. Now, when he talks about the saints, the service to the saints, who is he referring to? Now, I want to suggest, and I'm going to prove this in a moment, I want to suggest that these people, the saints in Paul's mind in this context, refer to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, in Judea. Not all Christians, the Lord's people, not all the Lord's people. A particular group of people who are Christians, Jewish people in Judea, Jerusalem. They're Jews who have become Christians where there's a great famine in Judea, whether you call it Palestine or Israel, back in the ancient world, during this period of history, um, there was a great famine that occurred and people were starving. They didn't have a welfare state. They couldn't just ring up um, the government and get uh, you know, uh, some kind of uh, a pension each, each fortnight or so on. Uh, they, if they couldn't make the food, uh, grow the crops, they'd starve. A great famine was happening. Now, Paul's concern here in these two chapters is to get non-Jewish people, what we would call the well, what is called the Gentiles, that's just what the word Gentiles means, anyone who's not a Jew, Gentiles. His concern is to get Gentiles to raise funds to support the saints, Jewish Christians in Judea, Jerusalem, because they're starving. So what's being talked about here is not just any act of charity. It's a very particular issue for Paul. It's not just Christians in general who happen to be in Jerusalem. It's Jewish Christians. Now you find yourself going, I hope you're sitting there going, what? Where do you get that from? Well, let me show you. Romans chapter 15. Turn back a few pages. Romans 15. Or swipe, do whatever you do. Romans 15, verse 25. Now, however, this is the same author, Paul, writing uh, to Christians in Rome. Uh, Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the saints. Same Greek word, there. Um, so Jerusalem, saints, you got it? Um, for Macedonia and Achaia, uh, now that's a region north of Corinth, if you, you, you know, so Jerusalem's down here, up around, you get up into Macedonia, which is where Philippi and Thessalonica are, down into Corinth uh, and Athens. Right? That's a kind of a little bit of the geography. Um, the, the Macedonian churches were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people, the saints, in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it and indeed they owed it to them. They, these Gentiles owed it to these Jewish people in Jerusalem. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. This whole thing's about Jews and Gentiles. So what he's saying is... Um, you Gentile Christian churches, the reason you've got the gospel of Jesus is because it came from the Jews in Jerusalem. 
It rebounded out of the Jewish people there, out of the Christians there too, who, who um, promoted the missionary work of the Apostle Paul and others. And so you've received the gospel because of the work of the Jewish Christians and, and so you've been brought to life. You therefore owe the Jewish Christians your life and so when they're in material need, you ought to pay them back. Something to express not only your appreciation for all that they've been in God's purposes but also your unity with them as God's people. That's the thing that's going on here. And Romans 15 helps you see very clearly that's the thing. The saints that he's talking about, the Lord's people he's talking about are not just any Christians... It's the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem and, um, and Judea. Uh, now, this explains much of the shape of these chapters when you understand this context. It's why verse 8, so come back to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. It's why verse 8, Paul says, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. Now, why is he not commanding them to give money to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem? In other contexts, he would have commanded them about their money in respect of their giving. When? When might he command them? Well, when giving, when giving money is an act of, of paying for a service, when it's an obligation owed. Um, you, you, you receive a service, you pay for it. Uh, the, the New Testament, the Bible's happy to command that. You see, I'll illustrate this. You go to the dentist and... Uh, <laughs> actually, make sure you go to the dentist, right? You go to the dentist and when you go to the dentist and they do all their work, you pay them at the end of it. Why do you pay them? It's not just because you're loving their work and want to just give them money. It's because they've, they've performed a service which cost them to do, they needed to buy the equipment and all the lights and building and so on and do the training and so on. It cost them to provide this service, so you reimburse their costs, you pay for the service, you see. And um, to fail to do that would be unchristian and to do it is entirely what is expected and so the Bible would command us to do that. Now, get this, much of church life, you are receiving a service... Now, many of you are part of the serving, but you're receiving a service where you receive teaching, feeding, encouragement, nurture. You receive small group life to form communities. You receive an opportunity to be trained and developed in your leadership and to participate in leadership. You, you, you're able to do all of that in the context where there is a building provided with lights and seating and so on, um, with parking. You, you, all of this is provided and you know, if you get sick, there's supports around you and there's all kinds of things that church is serving you in, us as a community, and all of that costs money. And so much of our giving to church is just... Paying for a service. It isn't generous at all. If you joined a club and received a gym thing and received a service, you'd pay for it. You join a church and receive a service from the church, you pay for it. You see, there's just much of what we do is just paying for a service. Um, the things that you benefit from cost to happen, they don't just happen. But the act of giving that he's talking about here, and, and if it is that kind of giving, uh, you, you've received a service gift for it, command it. You ought to. But the kind of giving he's talking about here in chapters 8 and 9 is not payment for service. 
it's an act of giving where there's no return in a sense. It's, it is reflecting on the, the, the blessing that's come, but not in the kind of way of, you know, job done, pay for it. Uh, it's an expression of unity and appreciation and love. Um, and so Paul doesn't pull out the you must give to the Jewish Christians line. Because what he wants them to do is express appreciation for the Jewish Christians. Which is why he bangs on about the heart. The gift to the Jewish... Now listen to this. The gift to the Jewish Christians from the Gentiles won't work if it's begrudging. If it's just tokenism. And let me illustrate this for you. At work, uh, you, um, you, you're in a small business, uh, you've got a boss who's uh, finishing up retiring or resigning or whatever, moving on, and uh, someone in the, the office decides to take up a collection to buy a gift for the boss uh, because of how you know, much we appreciate the boss. And so they hand, a, they hand a hat around the office, it's only a small office, let's say five workers, and, um, and they say, look, we're going to buy a present to express how much we appreciate the boss as they're leaving, can you put in a bit of money in? And as you go around, um, you know, a person chucks in a gold coin, a dollar, uh, and says to himself, herself, tick, I've fulfilled all righteousness, I've given a gift, a dollar, in. Now, what's the result when the boss finds out that you gave a dollar? Actually, make it more vivid. When the five people of staff have been, the collection's gone around and the total comes into $5, and the person takes the $5 to the boss and says, Here's your going away present. How does the boss feel? Paralysed with uncertainty, exactly right, that's right. <laughs> now, how, does, how does the boss feel? Really thrilled, look, ten is thrilled, one is angry and hurt. Which is it? One. Because <laughs> it is five dollars. It could have been worse. No, it couldn't be worse. This is the thing. You see, um, it would have been better that no one gave anything than that you give him or her five dollars. Because what does receiving $5 say from this group of people? It says, is that what you thought of my leadership? That, 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 that you're mocking me with the gift you've given me. Better that you gave nothing, do you see? There are some kinds of gifts that only work if they're from the heart, generously given. There's some kinds of giving that works even if it's just a box-ticking obligation you need to do it. Pay for service. Giving to the Jews in Jerusalem from the Gentiles needs to be a thing of the heart. Because what Paul wants the Gentiles to say to the Jews in Jerusalem is, we have loved what you've done in history to mean that we now have the gospel. And so what they give needs to be the kind of gift that says that. And if it's just box ticking, tokenism, it will offend the Jews in Jerusalem and cause greater divisions between the Gentiles and the Jews and the whole thing will blow apart. It needs to be from the heart, which is why the Apostle Paul says, I'm not commanding you. I want to test the sincerity of your love, you see. It needs to be something that, verse 11, 
grows out of your eager willingness. It needs to be something they overflow in wanting to do for it to work. Now, in all of this, he's not concerned actually about the amount of money, actually. It doesn't matter how much the money is. He says that in verse 11. Uh, You need to give according to your means. So if you're only earning a small amount of money, obviously you'll only give a small amount away. Um, He's not concerned about the raw amount. What he's concerned about is is the, the sacrifice. You may be earning a small amount, but sacrifice generously from that amount, which will be smaller than the person who's earning a great amount and sacrifices generously from that. But the heart of generosity is what he's concerned about. He's concerned, the money's secondary. It's about the motive in giving. Um, so he doesn't command, it needs to be an act of the heart that properly reflects their sense of appreciation and love of the Jewish brethren. Now how then does he motivate them? He can't command them. How does he motivate them? He motivates them by pointing them to the example of two people, two different people. And by a subtle act of putting the knife in and twisting it as he goes along. We'll see some of that. Let me show you the two people. The first one is the Macedonians, verse 1. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches, Philippi and Thessalonica, Berea, these places. In the midst of very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I can testify that they gave as much as they were able, even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. They exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. And I think what Paul means by that is that the, the Macedonian Christians gave themselves first to the Lord. They, they submitted to the Lord and his desires, his purposes, his wills. They gave themselves and said, Lord, whatever you want for us, we'll do. Then they gave themselves to Paul as the Lord's ambassador and said, the Apostle Paul, he represents God's work and thought to us. And so whatever he values, we want to value because he is aligned with God's... They gave himself to Paul. Um, And in all of this, uh, they gave sacrificially. They were the first to do it. They even supported actually Paul in his missionary endeavours in preaching the gospel. You can read that in chapter 11 and Philippians chapter 4 and uh, elsewhere. Um, But they bought into what God was about. They bought into what Paul was about and they gave. Now, what's Paul doing here by sharing the news of the Macedonian churches with the Corinthians? Here's what he's doing. And this is the big one. He's showing the Corinthians what the grace of God does to a person. He's showing the Corinthians what the grace of God does to a person. I want you to notice actually how often the word grace is used through this section. And again in the English it doesn't quite help but but verse 1 Um, I want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In verse 4, the word grace is there as well, the privilege of sharing, the favour and grace of sharing in this service. You get it in verse um, uh, 7, so that you excel in this grace of giving. You get it in verse 9, the grace. The word grace is riddled all the way through this passage. Um, And so 
what he's doing is showing, what, what Paul is doing to the Corinthians is saying, here's what grace does to a person, Macedonia. Here's, here's, when you get grace, when you understand grace, when you have the grace of God in your life, this is what it'll do to you. You'll look like the Macedonians. Now, how does that work? Well, think with me about the word grace. Fundamentally, the word grace means unmerited favour. It means generosity. Uh, Generosity towards someone who doesn't deserve it. To be gracious is to give someone something that they've not earned, they haven't merited, they're not worthy of, to give over and above what they deserve, to be gracious, akin to generosity, Uh, to be kind. Here, however, in chapters 8 and 9, the word grace stretches to also include a kind of power that is in work in your person to make them gracious. So that's, that's verse 1. We want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonians. The generous favour that God has given the Macedonians to work in their life to produce in them grace. To be people of generous favour towards others. Um, God has acted in us graciously to stir us to be people of grace, to be kind, generous, warm, good towards others. You see, that's what grace is. When you have grace at work in your life, it makes you a person who is open-hearted to others. It makes you a person who is generous, wholesome, good, wanting good for others. And you can contrast grace with selfishness, with hoarding and holding back and being closed with people and um, uh, wanting bad for people and looking to judge quickly and condemn, uh, finding fault as a person. And here I hope, what I want to show you here is that what Paul's talking about here is beautiful. What he wants to show you is a life that's beautiful. Um, Which is why he never mentions money, actually, because it's not about money. It's about a transformation of life in a person to be like the Macedonians, to create in a person grace, where their face is towards other people with warmth, open-hearted, care, concern, generosity, favour, doing for others what they don't deserve. To turn a person from being inward-looking into being outward-looking. We might have once used the language of love to describe all this, but I think today the language of love is becoming so weird. When you can say love is love, you mean nothing by love anymore, so the word love's losing all traction. Um, But what he's talking about here is generosity, openness, wanting good for others, wanting to give yourself for the sake of others, grace, even though they don't deserve it. Now, which life do you want to live? Which life do you want to live? The life of centred in on yourself, fighting for your rights, insisting that you be respected? Or do you want to be a person who is full of grace towards others, who is open, warm and generous, ready to lose yourself for the sake of the good of others? What kind of life do you want to live? When you understand it like this, I want to suggest to you that what Paul is doing in these two chapters is wanting for the Corinthians a life that is glorious and great, that will just get bigger as the years go on, 
that will become more and more warm and generous and open as the years go. That's what he's wanting for these Corinthians. It's not about the money. It's about becoming a person of grace like the Macedonians, a person of generosity, quick to own their obligations to the Jewish Christians, quick to realise how much we owe and want to give back, quick to recognise responsibilities and so gladly ready to fulfil them, quick to see the needs that others have. Here it was their physical needs, quick to see those needs and want to help out of their overflow or even poverty even, to give, not stingy and miserly. Paul isn't about the money. He's about producing Christ in his people. And so he finally lands on Jesus, actually, verse 9. Did you see that there? Because the ultimate example of open, generous, wholesome goodness is Jesus. So look at verse 9. For you know, I'm not commanding you, verse 8, for you know the grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. That there might be an extraordinary transfer. He loses his wealth and gives it up to enable you in his poverty to be rich, such as his grace. And all of this, what Paul is doing is effectively shaming the Corinthians, actually. He's, um, he's shaming them with a beautiful illustration of the Macedonians and more particularly the Lord Jesus, about the full, kind love and grace of these people. Now, let's consider verse 9 a little bit more fully because it's quite an extraordinary verse. It needs a bit more time on it. Um, Have a look with me there again again at verse 9. Though he was rich. Now, what does that mean? Though the Lord Jesus was rich. Think on this with me for a moment. He was rich. I think what Paul is referring to here is the pre-incarnate life of Jesus, the um, eternal life of Jesus, where the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, before he entered the world as a man, was eternally blessed in the oneness of the relationship he had with the Father and the Spirit. He was on the throne of glory throughout eternity, being praised and adored in intimate union with the Father, with everything available to him to enjoy and find pleasure in. He was rich. But he became poor. For our sake, he became poor. What does that mean? He was born in Bethlehem as a man. He took on a human body, took on flesh, emptied himself, lived as a nobody. During his ministry, he had no home. The God of the universe entered our world and did not have a pillow to rest his head on. Roamed the streets of Palestine with no money, living off the gifts of others, God. The one who was rich emptied himself. And then he gave himself up to abuse, verbal and physical. Then finally the crucifixion, even death on a cross. He allowed us to kill him. The one who was rich becomes poor. And a poverty that actually was spiritual, in that his poverty, in his poverty, he takes onto himself our sin. He takes on our shame, our guilt, and dies under the weight of it, under the judgment of God. He who was rich in intimate relationship with the Father entered into the shame and horror of sin and lost it all, lost everything that was rich. And he did all of this so that we might become rich. 
And I think here by riches, he doesn't mean wealth. I think he means here righteousness before a holy God. I think it's spiritually he's talking about it here that, that a righteous, that we would be able to be given a righteous, an intimacy with the Father that the Son used to have. An intimacy with the Father, a righteousness before the Father that's not ours by worth and merit and earn, but gifted to us by the one who gave up everything that we might have it. Though he was rich, he became poor, so that in his poverty, we might become rich. And this was done freely. He chose to do this freely, the grace of God. Now, the Macedonians are a great example of a grace life, a life of grace, giving freely to others. But Paul comes quickly to the fact that the greater example, one that's infinitely greater, is the act of God towards us which is, of course, the engine that drives the grace of the Macedonians. Now, which life do you want? Which life do you want? Do you want to be the middle-class Australian Christian who grows up and just uh, um, gets as much money as you can and buys as many houses as you can and has as many holidays as you can and gets the nicest car you can in the sound system and get as much as you can and give a little bit to church as you have to? Do you want to be that Christian? who clings to themselves and, and amasses for themselves and, um, and thinks about their rights and, and their pleasures and their comforts? Or do you want to be like the Macedonian Christian, who is like the Lord Jesus, who was open and generous and full of grace and warmth, overflowing with love for others, willing to let go of what was theirs for the sake of others? Now let me apply this to us. Let me apply this to us. Good Bible reading doesn't just rip a verse out of context. We need to make sure we pay attention to what the Bible's saying in context. And therefore, I want to tell you what this is not about and then what it is about. What's this not about? Well, it's not about, this is not a chapter in the Bible about giving to church. We are behind budget and as a pastor of the church responsible for the money of the budget, I'm it's attempting to want to say this is all about you, but it's not. So we won't do that. There are principles here that apply to that, but that's not what this is about. It's not about giving to the poor. This is not a chapter in the Bible about how the Macedonians gave to the poor in Jerusalem and we ought to give to poor people. That's not what this is about either. There are principles here that apply to giving to the poor and we ought to be giving to the poor, but that's not what this chapter is. It's a particular chapter about Jewish Christians who are poor from whom in history these Gentiles received the gospel. It's a very particular thing. So what is it? It's about what kind of person you're going to be. It's about what kind of person you're going to be. It's about your heart. It's about being in touch with the true heart of God, understanding what He is like, what He has done for you and the difference that that ought to make in your life. If you understand the grace of the Lord Jesus who though rich became poor so that through His poverty you might become rich, when you understand that, it can't but change you to be like Him, to want to be full of grace towards others, to be overflowing and generous, voluntarily wanting to give, willing and eager to do more and more, just like the Lord Jesus was. It ought to create in you an overflow of desire to do good to others and give to others, even at cost to yourself. 
Now, is that how you are? Do you have that overflow of desire to want to give and be generous? Now, in a sense, the question's a cruel one because we're all works in progress. The Corinthians certainly were. I am. We all are. We're not where we want to be. And I hope you appreciate that. Um, In fact, the Corinthians started talking about wanting to give money to this service but ran out of energy and interest and stopped doing it. They heard in church about how important it is to give and be generous and they said, yeah, I should do that, walked out the door and forgot. So we're all a work in progress. But the Macedonians, they didn't even wait to be told about it in church. They initiated the act of wanting to give and followed through on it. They never got disgruntled when church talked about giving. Ah, here we go again. That wasn't the Macedonians. This is about a massive life change for us. Because let me tell you again as I started, money does something to you. You may not feel it yet, though some of you may start to. Money does something to you. It takes hold of us. It's like a drug, like a, like a creature that puts its claws into your heart. And you become, you become codependent with it. You need money. You need the love of money and the wealth that it gives you. Do you know, we are the richest people on earth. Australians. We're the richest people on earth. Now, not every one of us, some amongst us in our church genuinely are poor. They're living hand to mouth. They can't, when they get a pay packet, it's all gone immediately on all the critical needs. But many of us are not living like that. We are are the richest people on earth and yet we feel poor. Now, sure, interest rates are going up and power bills are going up and food costs are going up and so on. And for some, that'll be truly hard. But here's the deal. If you're, if you're amongst us tonight and you're, you're married and you're two incomes, you are not poor. You are very wealthy. If you're living at home and you've got a full-time job and you're earning an income, you are very wealthy. The amount of disposable income that you have at present is more than you'll probably ever have. You are very wealthy. If you're a student with um, um, uh, you know, um, allowances from the government and so on, you are killing it. I, I, when I went through uni, <laughs> you know, you, you, many of us are very much more wealthy than we admit. What's happened for us is that we've redefined need. You know, I, I'm not wealthy because all my money goes on everything straight away. And I, well, what's it going on? Well, you know, I've, I've got to pay 20 bucks to my family for board and or, you know, 50 bucks rent to the house I'm in. But then I've got to pay for Netflix I've got to buy a $1,000 iPhone. It's got to be the latest one and keep moving up with it. Do you know, I need that sound system. Um, I need to do that trip. I'm dreaming about that trip I need to go on. Um, you know, Maccas, I need to go and do uh, fast food regularly. Um, Gomez and Gonad or whatever his name is. <laughs> Gomez and who? Who is it? You know what I'm talking about. It does take. I'm not a fan, I've got to tell you. But um, do you know, coffee, I've got to have a coffee every day. Do you know, how much is a coffee? Two bucks. Where's it, two bucks? <laughs> Here. <laughs> do, 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 do you know, brothers and sisters, you are not in need. You are not in need. Some few of you are. 
But be careful not to redefine need so that it makes you feel like you've got no money. Money does something to us. Our houses are now massively much bigger than they ever were 50 years ago, with fewer people living in them. Um, now, in all of this, please get this right. I'm not saying it's wrong to go to Maccas. I'm not saying it's wrong to have an iPhone. I'm not saying it's wrong to have holidays. I'm not saying, it's, I'm not saying anything's wrong. Netflix is not wrong. I'm not saying these things are wrong. I'm just saying don't pretend you're poor. God has given us all good things to enjoy. It's okay to have holidays. It's okay to have nice things. Just don't pretend you're poor. Do you know, an older Christian brother has uh, made the point, he's been in ministry for many more years than I have, and he, he, he said a little while ago that he thought the greatest spiritual problem, danger for Christians, what could be the greatest spiritual danger for Christians? He said it's materialism and greed. You don't see many Macedonians amongst us. And in fact, here's a danger actually. I, I, I know many have kind of read this chapter and thought, well, the Macedonians look pretty foolish. They're giving beyond their means. That seems stupid. No, no, no. Let me, let me explain what is going on here. When you read the last little section, verse 11 to 15, what Paul, I think, is saying is you give like the Macedonians, but not give so much that you become a charity case. That's all he's saying. Give and give and give, but not so much that you end up on the street with no ability and we have to pay for you now. The Macedonians gave and gave and gave, but not so that they became charity and needed us to bail them out. No, no, no. Um, Now, where ought you give? Well, give yourself to the Lord and then to Paul. Give yourself to the Lord. You are his servants. We are his servants. Let his purposes now grip you. And then give yourself to the Apostle Paul. Bow to his word as God given and follow the apostolic priorities of life. Give yourself to what he cares about. Now, what did the Lord Jesus care about? What did Paul care about? Saving the world. Making disciples. And I think that's the practical thing that directs our giving. What mattered to God and then to Paul? Seeking and saving the lost. We give to that, like Macedonians. We work out ways to keep breaking the power of money in our lives and the best way to do that is to give. Give chunks of money. Give regularly. Keep upping your giving. Find ways to give. Paying attention that you don't become a charity case yourself. But be aware of the danger of money to redefine need so that what you think you need is not really what you need. It's what the world around you has told you you need. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we ask please that you would help us wrestle with these things wisely, that we would receive every good thing with thanksgiving and and not despise nice things and good things. But help us though, please use those things as no not engrossed in them. Help us be people who can be Macedonians, generous and sacrificial, open-hearted, who can keep finding ways to give away. And give to others and give particularly to the cause of the gospel going out. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.